This episode of The Interchange is brought to you by APSA and Simu. So hello and a warm welcome to a first of a new season of The Interchange, coming to you from the APSA Contact Center in Johannesburg. I am your host, Busim Kumbuzi. Now it's Youth Month in South Africa, a time when we reflect on the collective history of young people as well as the contemporary role that they play in shaping society. Interestingly enough, we also come from our general election on the 8th of May, just over a month ago. But according to the IEC, the majority of young people did not participate in that election. And take it as you may, it is in contrast to our very first democratic election on 27 April 1994. You know, reflecting on the iconic photos of our newfound democracy are pictures of snaking queues of thousands and thousands of eager South Africans waiting to vote. My mom was pregnant with me at the time, but when I talked to her about the experience and when so many other people talk about it, they're able to appreciate that we were living through a moment in history. Fast forward to 2019 general election, most South Africans boycotted the election, Almost half of young people did not register and did not vote. And just hours before the election, in fact, the hashtag I want to vote but was trending nationally on Twitter. The common go-to for many people when analyzing this disastrous youth voter turnout is apathy. And many have said that apathy has normalized itself as a silent majority in our country, such that if the unvoting youth came together and formed this united bloc, they could literally swing the election result and it could go into a different direction. So today we're debating the motion, this House believes that voter apathy among the youth did more good than harm in the South African general elections. And to help us unpack this topic, we've got a side proposition with Webster, who is a one-day leader, um, one-day leader runner-up, rather, the reigning SADC debating champion and a world's quarter finalist, as well as a queer activist. We also have Lindo, who is a BA law student seeking to create an impact in society through service. And then on opposition, we have Mbilo, who is the Pan-African Debating and Public Speaking Champion 2017, as well as a feminist passionate about discourse and youth empowerment. And finally, Mfumo, who is a world-renowned debater and debate coach, a world's quarter finalist, and a social activist interested in identity politics. Our expert for today's debate who's going to help us understand issues on both proposition and opposition is Kaya Sitole, who is a political commentator, a recovering accountant, and like I like to call him a Twitter rati, our favorite Twitter commentator. Um, Kai, I'm going to start with you, and I'm just going to ask you briefly to give expression to the complexity in youth voters' views. And tell us to what extent you think this complexity is important in today's debate. Uh, thank you, thank you. Uh, I think there are a couple of issues that are unique to South Africa and that firstly we do not do detailed polling and poll assessments so we all know that young people didn't vote but we cannot actually quantify how many of them didn't vote so I think it remains a limitation of our particular system. Mm. I think also the key issue of course is one has to go back and ask the question of what the voting process and the general election represents. Mm. If the general election is regarded as the primary conduit or the primary instrument of implementing change then of course people believe 
believe in it. It's regarded as a legitimate system. What you've seen with South African young people in particular over the past couple of years is that they've actually identified different ways of getting the system to react to their demands. So if you look at the Roads Must Fall movement, if you talk about the Fees Must Fall movement, mm. these are instances where people have said we want something to be done. Clearly the political architecture that says we must go and carry favor with the minister of the day and if you don't carry a particular branch card then you're not going to get into the room anyway mm. is no longer the way that we want to engage. So having found a way to get things done in a particular way, it was always going to be very difficult to then re-establish the legitimacy of the ballot bags as the primary instrument of making things happen. And I think also for me, one of the most important things that happens in South Africa on an ongoing basis is a service delivery protest. Yeah. And what service delivery protests have come to represent is again the, mo- the one way where you get the most immediate re- reaction or the most immediate outcomes from the state. I think you'll remember last year in particular in the Northwest when the people took to the streets, the most dangerous thing that happened is that the president of the country abandoned the trip. He was in London and then he came back and he said, I'm going to address this. Now, of course, what you've told those people is that never mind every other avenue that has been put out there. If you want a particular reaction, if you want to recall a sitting president from an international trip, just go and burn a thing or two. So, of course, what that does is that it starts creating this assumption among society that, look, clearly having voted five years ago, I haven't seen any particular changes, but the people that did take to the streets, they did get that portal fixed. So I've identified different ways of making things happen. So I do think that we must also acknowledge that young people do not exist in a vacuum. They're a subset of a bigger social system. So I think there's been a waning legitimacy of democracy throughout the country. And of course, young people are the ones that are probably going to be the ones that react to that and say, oh yeah, if other people are saying the system is not legitimate, well, we're actually going to prove that it's not legitimate. So you need to be able to then take a step back and understand that it wasn't just young people who created this particular vacuum and said, we're going to do things differently. They reacted to the prevailing mood of the day. They reacted to the prevailing way of things being done in the country. And then they simply said, well, actually, this is how we're going to interact with the system. So I think when we speak of the essence of apathy, we probably do focus on the youth because for me, a general election is never about what's happened in the past. It's always a question of what do you think the future ought to look like? And who do you want to put in place to shape that future? Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, if you sit out that particular process, you end up being governed by the type of people whose future is probably not as long ranging as yours. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think you've seen over the past couple of days, there's been this big debate um, around the Reserve Bank and all of that stuff. And all these politicians are saying different things. And I then tweeted this morning and then I said, well, all of these people are speaking absolute rubbish because I wrote an article in 2018 and I said, by the way, guys, something has been put, it's been codified into the resolutions of a particular political party. It says these things are going to happen. Right now, you're not paying attention to it. At some point in time, when you put them back into power, they're going to make it happen. And that's what happened now. So in as much as I've said from outset that those resolutions are absolute rubbish, people didn't challenge them when they were being put into that particular resolution. So now they have to be implemented. And people cannot decide to react now, two years after I warned them and say, we do not agree with this. So when you set out this particular process you have to live with the reality that the consequence is that you'll be governed by the consequences of the actions that you do not participate in. If that's what you want to do, by all means, go ahead. I'm just not signing up for that. All right. A mouthful. Um, I think let's get into this debate. It's going to be a fiery one. Uh, But before then, let's go through the rules of the debate. We're following a British parliamentary format, which means that there are four debaters, two on each side. We begin with the proposition speaker one, and then we end off with the opposition speaker two. Each speaker has four minutes to speak. The first minute and the last minute are protected. But in between then, the opposing team may ask points of information. 
Right then, with nothing further to do, I'm going to hand over to the proposition speaker one, Webster, to open the debate here. Here. Panel, at the end of this debate, it's important for you to understand that what it means to vote is to invest in a specific system. And when you invest in something, you expect a return on that investment. We think that if the, principally, if the government has erred in giving you a, and a return in your investment, we think that it is also just principally just for you to withdraw from that specific investment because it's just not a good investment. A couple of things from opening government and what we'll tell you. Firstly, we'll tell you why political spaces just don't do anything for the youth and why it's okay for them to, uh, to be, uh, to be apathetical within this sense. But secondly, we'll tell you why political ideology is fueled in its following. So people that are, people that do have political ideologies such as the ANC and the EFF do, uh, can only run at a point where they, uh, they have an active following. The second thing. Second thing here is that we're going to tell you that we're going to tell you why deconstructing tokenization for adequate representation and why this is important. Um, first thing, one first, minute is up. Um, political ideology is grounded within its following. We tell you here that political ideologies cannot move at a point where there aren't people that follow or believe in this. We think that this is an active way of getting accountability. We don't think that the youth have comparatively, comparatively gotten any form of accountability in that sense because we yeah, don't yeah. think that there's any form of ability for them to protest. We think that at a point where you don't give the, 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 the youth jobs, we think that they better off here because there's no promise. At a point where your investment is not giving you a promise, we tell you here, if you had not invested, you don't expect a promise or you don't expect a return from that specific investment. We think that that's specifically important. Second thing here yeah. is political spaces don't do anything for the youth. But what do they do? They specifically uh, 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 tokenize the youth. So at a point where the youth say that, hey, we don't have any form of representation in a moment in Fumo, at a point where they don't have representation, what happens here is they put Nompendulo in parliament, one youth, they put Moiponi Mklongo in Nkuruleni, and they put Fasia Hassan in Gauteng Provincial Legislature. They tell you that's a form of pacifying the youth and telling you that, hey, you've got representation, but how can you have one person represent you when you are the majority of the people that win you the vote or the majority of the people that make the change happen? Mfumo, you've got something. Go. You only have one burden in this debate is to justify where is the good in undermining a political or democratic system which is voting? Sure. So Mfuma does not get to tell me what my burden in this debate is. But if even if I take him at its best, I've already told you that at a point where an investment does not do you good, the good in you withdrawing from that investment is when it does not make you a return and you say, okay, I don't want this investment anymore. I want another investment or I don't want investment at all because comparatively ladies and gentlemen all these political parties don't give you anything so all these investments are bad so your money is better off where you don't invest and that's something that's particularly important lastly here ladies and gentlemen we tell you that principally it is completely justified when an you individual have has erred within their obligation to, uh, to 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 withdraw but historically it's also important for you to understand that historically ladies and gentlemen black people have been disenfranchised or south africans have been disenfranchised the reason why we are here is because the promises of the past have not yet been fulfilled and they are still not yeah, being fulfilled. Yeah. We think that at that point in time, ladies and gentlemen, there's an active change that needs to be happen to happen. But that change cannot happen when a question does not arise or where there's no question. We think that the only time a question can arise is when you say, why are the biggest demographic in South Africa not voting? What are we doing wrong? I have never been more proud.
Webster, thank you for that speech. We now welcome the first speaker of opposition, Pilo, to oppose. Panel, I have an important question to answer in today's debate, and it is, what are the harms or the consequences of voter non-participation? Before I delve into that question, just some key rebuttal. Webster tells us that at a point where you feel like democracy is illegitimate and it isn't yielding results, you have the right to opt out. I want to create a key distinction. There's a difference between a government, which is the entity that administrates a state, and the state itself, and the sort of governance system that that state opts into. Democracy is a mechanism, it is not your government. At a point where your your government, which you said is the entity that fails your investment, isn't yielding returns. You use your system to negate that government and elect somebody else different. In the absence of you opting into democracy, what do you use for change? Do you opt into an authoritarian regime? Because those are the two dichotomies that we have to engage in today's debate. The second element of rebuttal that I want to engage is the idea of accountability, which I'll answer under my question of what are the uh, um, effects of non-voter participation. So I'm going to deal with that there. Then the last thing that Webster says is that at a point where you're not participating, then you have no expectations. That's a very dangerous sort of um, rhetoric to run because civilian participation is contingent on things like the other ways in which you participate in, in, in civilian activity. At a point where you're paying tax, we don't think it's ever healthy for you to have no expectations of your government because why participate in the first place? When a government requires certain things of you, you, have the, you, you must, in fact, engage in national discourse that affects that, that, that two-way reciprocity, right? So if you're paying tax, you ought to have a, a stake in what your government does. On my question of what are the harms of voter apathy, the first thing is that this harm exists on a principle level. We think voting yeah, yeah. is a vehicle for democracy, but moreover, it's a vehicle, it's the primary vehicle of political engagement under democracy. There are two purposes to voting. Number one, as an accountability mechanism. That is to say, we apply it retrospectively. You hold the previous administration Perfect. accountable by having your dissatisfaction or satisfaction Below. voiced in the next election. The second element of uh, a vehicle of democracy, which is uh, voting, is that you, you install a mandate for the next administration. At a point where our voting patterns display that we are dissatisfied with the previous administration, you redirect the mandate of the new administration. So it's a dual retrospective and a prospective mandate. That's how you get the accountability that you so desperately want. At a point where, I'll take you um, later, at a point where you're not in, engaging at all in democracy, you can't hold the previous administration accountable. A key example is how from 2014, we've seen an 8.4% uh, drop in voter participation. That means that whoever was administrating us in 2014 doesn't have the ability to have voting used as a mechanism for ensuring accountability retrospectively, but moreover, we can't redirect the the mandate prospectively through voting that dissatisfaction. Yes, Webster. So, panel, understand that their form of accountability is reactive. We have a more proactive stance. They want to have accountability at a point where the youth has already been harmed. We are not harmed. Great. So I'm talking about political theory. Voting has a dual mandate. You hold the previous administration accountable, and then you also set the mandate for the next uh, administration. We have a dual approach, actually. It's not a one-sided one. But moreover, we tell you at a point where this, this principle is so sanctified that 22 countries in this world have compulsory voting, we wouldn't advocate for voter apathy because there's the extreme end of the spectrum where, one where countries like um, Singapore, Mexico, Brazil actually compel, compel you to vote. The second um, question is, how does this affect status quo? At a point where we're dealing with low service delivery, the lowest GDP rate we've seen in a while, and unemployment, we think that you opt out of the, your ability to use that vehicle of discourse to change the status oh, quo shame. by electing an administration or at the very least diluting their power such that they have an incentive right. to engage th- that constituency. When you opt out, especially as the youth, you forfeit that and almost going to expand on why the youth vote is specifically important, but number two, how um, non-participation dilutes the, the very point you aim to make. Thank you. Thank you so much for that speech, Mpilo. I hand over to the proposition speaker two to extend their case and conclude here, here. 
So the first thing that I'm going to do is I'm going to quickly address what Mpilo just brought up. So the first thing that she t- that she tells us in response to our case is that we can't necessarily opt for a situation where we are opting out of, um, I guess, accountability through voting. But the thing is that this is, in fact, a mechanism that we're using to improve democracy within itself. So it's not us oh, yeah. just saying that we're opting out of the mechanism of democracy. The only difference here is that we're no longer using voting in the orthodox way of simply holding people accountable by voting them out or voting other people in. This is to say, voting can also be a mechanism where we absolutely opt out to show that we are dissatisfied with the administration slash the government yeah, that she yeah. says is different from the mechanism. So basically we're not okay with an orthodox utility of voting. The second thing that she discusses is that we must have an expectation on government because once that's lost then we lose direct accountability of both which is the dual accountability she brings up on both like the past government and the future government. So the first thing is that she's She's justifying a status quo that isn't working. Accountability for the previous administration isn't working in a world where we do have voting as a means of holding these people accountable. However, we still do have alternative ways of holding previous administrations or current administrations accountable. For example, when the youth protest, when we burned stuff, we already told you that the government has an explicit and immediate obligation to respond to us. So voting isn't the only way we can hold the past and present administrations accountable. But as far as the future goes, the reason why it is important for us to opt out or why apathy is more beneficial than it is harmful is that it, for, if it, it creates an urgency for the government to shift its focus to the reasons why the youth aren't voting, which means that we create a better incentive and platform of a step, sorry, and like starting point for the subsequent government. Yeah, yeah. So now that that's dealt with, what am I specifically going to tell you in addition to what we've already told you? What I'm simply going to tell you is that democracy is not inherently good. That's it does not mandate us to always protect it from being deconstructed. Yeah, so just because yeah. people aren't voting doesn't mean that it is inherently bad. Democracies should be shaken because the system isn't perfect. That's why people are dissatisfied with Trump. That's why we are constantly dissatisfied with yeah, other yeah. democratically elected governments and state, um, and state like um, entities. So, however, what I will also show you is why it is in fact good for democracy that apathy exists, which shows why this is more beneficial than harmful. So the first thing, like I previously alluded to, is that this actually um, creates a shift in focus. So because the youth is such an important part of the demographic from just being the largest people who are in the workforce, the largest people who are also unemployed and so forth, it means that because we're such an important number in terms of how voting turns out, the government has an explicit obligation to listen to us yeah, yeah, because it's in the best interest of political parties to listen to what we're saying in order for them to secure our votes in the future. But before I proceed... Give me the full 15 seconds. On Trump, what happens is you elect a violent racist bigot at a point where you fracture the democratic vote and instead of voting to prevent that harm from being actioned, Democrats abstain from the vote. Yeah, Trump is exactly what happens when you don't establish a mandate prospectively and you don't hold accountable retrospectively. Trump is what happens when Linda, white supremacists have been dissatisfied with like a more liberal kind of government. But that doesn't mean that other means of holding people like Trump accountable are failing. So we still have things like impeachment. Yeah, yeah. We still have like the, um, auto, like what's this, the autonomy of courts. So we don't think that Trump being in power is just because people were apathetic when it came to voting. That's not necessarily the case. The other thing as to why this is good is that we cre- this is that this questions the substance of the legitimacy of the people we have in power. So now it's no longer just the ANC is the best political party because of numbers. It's sure they got the numbers, but they didn't get the majority of the important population. Yeah, yeah. What does this mean about the substance of their political legitimacy? Lastly, this is an important form of protest. We think that orthodox means of protesting 
housing have shown not to work. But when the youth is burning infrastructure, government officials suddenly have an explicit and immediate obligation to want to respond. It is important for preserving democracy that we always Lindo, restructure the way that up. we respond. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. And to close... The, both the opposition's case and the debate, I hand over to the opposition speaker to Mfumo. Cool. Um, <clears throat> thank you very much, Busi. I think the purpose of this debate is not met yet because we are speaking of the youth flippantly. We need to speak of the youth as an electorate, as someone who can aid for change, vote for change, but be change in governance and administration. But at the point in time where you find good in them not voting or in them not participating in the political framework, then that's very dangerous because the harm at the end of the day is that the cycle of their poverty, the cycle of their unemployment, and the cycle of all deviant things that they go through continue happening, right? I say again that the, 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 the biggest case that they run here is that they want the youth to opt out. We say opting out is dangerous for two reasons. One, you wait a, a time frame of five years for that to change. But yeah, yeah. two, you then wait another additional uh, uh, um, a, a time frame to be then convinced by political manifestos, to be convinced by political parties. At that point in time, you are now confused in making the decision that is going to help you. Once you are apathetic, you, you are then most, most likely to become apathetic in the next election. Then we don't have the turnouts, and then the turnouts become very dangerous. I think We're also what minute. we oh, I think also what we need to separate is what? political alienation and voter apathy. Right? Yeah, yeah. Voter apathy is that. Voter apathy simply refers to people not caring about elections and voting. But political alienation is a group of electorates within a political system that are not catered for by the political point. parties or by the uh, by the election system. At the point in time when the youth uh, uh, is, we we classify them as people who are alienated within the political system. Their only recourse is to go into that system and change. They are not yeah. alienated by the democratic system. They are alienated by the government or the person who is in power. So when they complain, they say, look, the ANC is not giving us jobs. The ANC is not giving us this, 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 this. And they list all those harms. But they never say that the democratic system it, in of itself is harmful to them. So we need to separate those Yo two I? things, right? Quickly. The thing is that it's the government system that puts the government that is failing them in power. So if there's a means to therefore use that system that places the people who aren't serving them um, to hold those people into accountable, then that should count as a valuable means, whether we do it in an orthodox way or not, which okay, is what so we're supporting. Would okay, rather yeah. opt for a world where you protest before the election because as you just said now, this, it's not this, it's not the system that is at fault. It is the government in power that's at fault. And what you do then, you, you run the risk of this patronage networks, right? So now, the people who are continuously voting, they vote on legacy lines, yeah, they yeah. vote on racial lines, FF+, they vote on, and on identity lines, right? Those individuals continue to protect those patronage networks, and the youth are con then con going to continuously be shut out. P.O.I.? I mean, Busi, even in her opening, alluded to the fact that if all the youth came together, started a political party, they're most likely to win the election and have majority of seats. So that shows Point the immense power that they have that if they could go into the polls and vote, then they could bring about change at the end of the day, right? So then, if also voter apathy is not the youth's fault, right? It's also a big mandate of the political parties them themselves, right? The reason why they're not campaigning to the youth or the reason why they're not campaigning to the young people is for their own self to introspect and reflect to say, we have a huge electorate, electorate that is not voting for us. How do we best fix the campaign? So yeah, then yeah. you can't tell those same electorate to not go vote when it is not their fault that they're not being spoken to, right? And we say, even if they protest at that point in time, their issues then get delayed 
by an additional five years. And that five-year time frame doesn't change anything or change their position at the end of the day, right? So I'd rather have or them protest, protest by voting, but not protest by abstaining from votes. And we say, lastly, uh, on the last thing, we asked four core questions, right? What is the cause of voter uh, uh, apathy amongst the young people? We are the ones who answered that. Secondly, does this remedy the harms in the status quo? We say the yeah. only way to remedy these harms is for you to appear in the polls. <laughs> Thirdly, does it serve the function of uh, uh, accentuating democratic and the political system? We say the only way to further democracy and ensure that people participate in the democratic system is to vote. Thank you. Okay. Time is up. Right at four minutes, two seconds. This was an interesting debate and a fiery debate. I want to commend debaters on both sides. Um, and, and Kaya, before I ask you what you thought about this debate, I just want to mention that I would really like you to speak to the issue of the legitimacy of the democratic system. It was a big clash in this debate um, where we found ourselves looking at is democracy the same thing as the government? And if we're dissatisfied with the government, can we also opt out of the democratic system? Are there things within the makeup of, of democracy in general in our country that makes it difficult to do the things that Mbilo and, and Fumo are, are espousing? Things like us organizing and forming this united bloc that's going to create this political party that's going to swing the vote and win the election. Practically, is that possible? Yeah, it's a difficult one, but I think, you know, in its simplistic terms, democracy is regarded as probably the one system that caters to the greatest number of constituents that you can find. And the big problem, of course, is that as time goes on, as the world becomes more corporate corporate in nature, the cost of participating in a democracy itself becomes a barrier to access. So the idea that young people could probably form a block and then say, we're going to actually go and run on our own, we're going to run our own particular political campaigns, that is fine in principle, but then the cost of mm. getting yourself mm. there has become a prohibiting mechanism, which really compromises a democracy, because in an ideal democracy, I should be able to raise a hand and say, there were 48 names on the ballot paper, and there were 48 people I didn't identify with, so I became number 49, I put that the, the, the cross next to my name. But of course, the cost of me getting to that particular process is something that is very prohibitive, particularly mm. in a country like ours. So I do think that we have that particular limitation. Yeah. Now, of course, there are the very important distinctions and the overlaps between the essence of democracy itself as an electoral system that seeks to achieve particular outcomes. So, of course, you adopt the system because you then say as a result of that system, we want to create a, a state of this nature. So what we have in South Africa is we've got this participation process which is open-ended. Everyone can vote for a particular political party. But Unfortunately, what is unique in the South African democratic system is that we really engage in a process of ratification mm. rather than a process of election. Mm. So a few years ago, I had to go and explain this to people that South Africans since 1994 have never ever elected a president. Yeah. We never even elected Nelson Mandela. What you do is that you go and put your cross next to your political party. That political yes. party then says, you have tacitly, you've implicitly yeah. ratified who we decided yeah. should be the, the, the president of the day. So that dichotomy that between us and the people that mm. we elect mm. makes it very difficult for you to turn around and say, oh, this president is not doing well because he'd be like, well, at the end of the day, technically, you never elected me. I was elected by the people that are in parliament. If you've got a problem, go and interact with those people in parliament. But in the South African context, very few people, in fact, if I ask for a show of hands here and ask of the 400 MPs, which one is from your own constituency? Because they all have a constituency office. None of us know who the 400 yeah. people that are sitting in parliament represent us. So, of course, if the answer is that you must go and speak to the person that put me as the president in parliament and you don't know who that person is, it already compromises the points 
of interaction. But also quite importantly, I do think that we need to be able to acknowledge that in the South African democracy, it's actually not a five-year thing. Mm. It's an ongoing thing. So every mm. week and every day, there are by-elections happening in your ward or in your community. And for a lot of people, their primary interaction point with the state and the government is what happens in your neighborhood. Yeah. Let's face it, a lot of us don't really care what happens at the union buildings. It is so far removed from us. It's so detached from our lived circumstances. We simply say there might be a president there, but what matters to me most is who's going to fix this particular pothole. So but young people shouldn't really see the presidential election as the yeah. only point of interaction. And you might find that within this five-year period that you speak of, you might then decide, I'm actually going to experiment. Mm. I'm mm. going to participate in every by-election. Mm. I'm going to participate in every ward election. I'm going to participate in every municipal election. And mm. if I do not see that translating to outcomes, then I'm not going to participate in the bigger And in one. fact, on that note, uh, Kaya, I want to ask our uh, proposition team a question. Is this kind of thing what you are alluding to as what political participation could look like for young people? Because you're saying the Holy Grail isn't the national democratic election. It's not a viable form of engagement for young people anymore. But what kind of alternatives are you proposing? So are you looking at this kind of system where Kaya is saying, are we engaging by elections? Are we engaging our municipal wards as other forms of engagement with the state? Or are you saying total um, um, disengagement is, is the answer? Um, so for me, I think that um, what we need to look at is like how political parties have in essence, isolated people. So, like, for instance, um, queer people, the um, colored people of South Africa, but moreover, even women, and how th- disengaging from... If colored people disengage from a, from from voting completely, in that five-year period that opposition is talking about, what could happen is political parties can then restructure manifestos to specifically speak to colored people and specifically engage that specific demographic that has pulled out. So what we're talking about is not active, like, not uh, voting. So the IEC has a program where they say you can register to vote, but you just don't know who to vote for, and that's important. We we support that, but something that we, we think is you vote for people that appeal to, one, your identity and things that you aspire to. And at the point where that does not happen, I think that you are okay. We should respect your choice not to vote. Bilo, Mfumo, the question I have for you is that usually in a debate like this, and I'm sure the audience will agree with me, one would expect an opposition to evoke the appreciation of the thousands who sacrificed their lives to give us the power and the freedom to vote. One would expect an opposition to speak about the fact that for many years, so many people were excluded from voting and that that itself should be reason enough for us to vote. You didn't do that in your debate. Why not? Yeah. So uh, on, on why, I'll start with why we didn't um, like invoke the past is because it's very important to separate votes because the 1994 election is a euphoric moment, right? Yeah. We're celebrating the installment of democracy mm. as a system, right? Yeah. Post that, it's now engaging democratic concerns like service delivery um, and all of those things. And we think there's a, a key distinction. As much as people did fight for us to earn the rights, we think we defend that as far as um, establishing democracy, as v- voting as a vehicle of democracy. But there's also a, a more nuanced kind conversation to be had about um, assessing democracy in action. Mm. Yeah, and I think also we can't speak of democracy without speaking of like participation, representation, and accountability because those are the pillars, the, the pillars mm. of democracy. And um, below is right. Like 1994 was a euphoric moment, and most of us, I would assume, in this room didn't go through oppression or at least uh, uh, the apartheid regime. So we are the generation that is now there to exercise the accountability part and the only way to do that Mm. is to participate. So I think the conversation has moved from yeah, 
we are fighting for blackness and all. It's now like, what are you doing now? You're the black mm. government, you know, mm. that type of thing. So we are there right now. I think in a country recovering from a decade of corruption, um, stagnation economically, and state capture, one would expect that the turnout would have been much higher. One would expect that people would have wanted to take control of our collective future. Instead, we had a low turnout, which speaks to the fact that many young people don't see voting as a credible means of achieving change in society. And I think this debate has tried to interrogate that and, and interrogate what other means exist for young people. Do young people want an alternative? Do young people feel that the social pact is broken and that elections are about the trust and that this trust element is eroded and therefore they don't feel that they can trust what this ex can do to, ta- to tangibly change their lives? What about the issues that young people care about? Do young people feel that access to education is being covered adequately by political parties? Do young people want to be engaged more? I think clearly we see that they do, but they don't want this engagement to be tokenistic. They want to truly be heard and be seen. And I think what we can definitely take out of this is this civic education is paramount and that we need to engage ourselves about the democratic system, the processes, what um, wards we 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 um, live in, who the representatives are, to what extent our views can be heard, even at a parliamentary level, even one, watching parliamentary TV. I'm just reflecting on an experience I had last year, sitting in a taxi, and these old uh, women were talking passionately about um, what happened in Parliament. And to me, I was thinking, it's a victory that people can talk about Parliament so intimately because they can watch it, and it's got that entertainment value now. And as young people, it's our responsibility to really start engaging our system more holistically. It's not just the election. There's much more to it. That was The Interchange. That was our first episode. Listen to more episodes as they come out each week um, on the Cliff Central channel. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll see you next time. The Interchange is a podcast series created to stimulate critical thinking among young South Africans. It was brought to you by APSA and Simu, amplifying the voices of young people.